What's up, Renaissance fam? My name is Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I have the really distinct privilege of doing some teaching. And shout out to everybody who's here for the first time. Uh, I remember what it felt like to walk into a church for the first time, and you don't know where to go. Um, and we would love to meet you after service in the lounge. There's some really friendly people who would love to, to talk to you. All right, so um, before we even get into t today's message, I wanted to have a quick prayer and also an announcement. Uh, so my dad grew up in Buffalo. And I have cousins who live near the Topps uh, grocery store, supermarket, um, and we were texting family members last night to make sure everybody was okay. And uh, I don't really have a statement to say. I'm just tired of making statements. I don't even know what to say. Uh, I actually want to reserve all of my energy these days to do something towards the contribution of building God's kingdom here uh, in New York. Uh, one of the things that I get to do alongside a lot of different pastors in the city is work with an organization called Pray March Act. Uh, Pray March Act is an organization committed to actually seeing policy changes. Uh, it's a Christian anti-racist organization that is seeking to have a more just world. If you are really bothered by stuff, uh, bother, being bothered is a good first step, and I would challenge you to consider what the next step could look like for you. So go on their website, PrayMarchAct.org, or on Instagram, follow them, and there's always new opportunities to hop on board with what they're doing. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to hop into this scripture this morning. Uh, so God, our Father, uh, there are people from, um, who are all over the place emotionally and, and spiritually today. And Lord, the common thread is that we need you. We need you to meet us exactly where we are. So I pray that you would do that in a real way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon that you regretted being there. Sometimes you regret being there because it was bad or because it was unnecessarily offensive. But other times you regret being there and you regret hearing what was said because you knew that by hearing what was said, you were going to have to change your life as a result of it. And it would have been easier to stay the same if you had never gone. A number of years ago, someone was preaching and he preached one of these sermons. And I'll never forget the line that he said in the sermon that has haunted me ever since I heard it, and I hope that it haunts you as well. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. I get a chance to talk to people from all different ages. Uh, my niece is about to be 13 years old, which is uh, bonkers. I can't even wrap my mind around it. Uh, and talking to my, my tween age, teenage niece, like kids really want to do something meaningful. They want to give their lives to something that's going to be remembered. They don't want to just exist. And they have this beautiful idealism that people like me in our, I'm in my low 40s, but I'm 40. Uh, people like me in my 40s, I've just been jaded by so much life that I'm not nearly as idealistic as I once was. And when I look at the innocence of my niece's face and see what she dreams for this world, man, I wish I could have just a piece of that. And she wants to do big, beautiful things but still nobody wants to do the dishes. Then I get a chance to talk to people who are, I'm not gonna call y'all old, older saints uh, in their 70s and 80s and people who have retired and they are now on the, the side of life where they're wondering if all that they've given their lives to, will it be remembered? Will it matter? Did they accomplish anything? Now, whether you are younger or older, we all want to do something 
big. We all want to see change happen in our world, but the common thread, whether you are 13 or 83, is that nobody wants to do the dishes. The dishes are literal, they're actual dishes, and they're also figurative. The dishes are the small acts of service that need to be done over and over and over again that will never come with any recognition. Now, here's why that sermon haunted me is because I'm always tempted to ask myself what's in it for me and almost everything that I do. I don't say it out loud, of course, because I'm, I'm, I'm smarter than that. But in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, well, what is in this for me? Here's a crazy thing, though. Every leader that you have ever respected, and you might not be someone who considers yourself a Christian, uh, every person that you have ever respected has this one common thing in common, that they have given their lives to a cause that is bigger than themselves. They don't use people for themselves. They give of themselves for people. Conversely, every leader you don't like does the opposite. They use people for their own selfish personal gain. And yet, when we think about our own lives, we are the people so often that our lives would not be marked by service, or better stated, by being a servant. So I read this one book by a man named Zach Eswin, and he wrote a book called Sensing Jesus, and here's what he said. Everyone wants to do things that are large and famous. Here's what he says, though. But most things that truly matter need small acts of overlooked love over a long period of time. In other words, we need to be people that are not just committed to the big and to the flashy, but rather to be people who do the small acts that don't get noticed over a long period of time. Better stated, we need to be servants. Now, we are starting a brand new sermon series on the book of James, and James is my dude. James is one of the most practical people in the Bible. James just gives it to you exactly like it is. James doesn't deal with a whole bunch of high, heady theology. James basically says, if you want to be a Christian, this is how you should live. He doesn't hide it in deep, complex language. He just says, you should do this. And I think that for the next couple of weeks and months, we're going to be in this book of James, and I would invite you all to be on a journey with me about what it would look like to put these things into practice in our lives. Now, you might not feel like you want to do these things, but I would love to challenge you to put them into practice, regardless how they feel, and then come and tell me later if it has deepened your walk with Jesus or given you more clarity that you, that you seek. So James starts off with verse 1, and this is all we're going to get to today, is one verse, really three words. James, a servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my goal for today. My goal today is to set you on a course that when you would describe yourself, you would describe yourself not as a person who does acts of service, but you would describe yourself as a servant. Even better, that the people who know you the best, the people who see you when nobody else sees you, that the th- those in your closest circle, that they would describe you as a servant. Now, I remember years ago when I was um, about 16 years old, I needed a way to support my sneaker habit. So um, I got a job at the Fountainhead, and I was catering um, weddings. And I was working at a caterer, at a catering hall, and it was a, a pretty hard job. I'd wear this, uh, this tuxedo and these hard, cheap shoes for like 12 hours at a time. 
And here's what a servant does. A servant sees a need and they meet the need. It's really not complicated. Your job as a waiter is to serve. And the waiter sees a need, somebody needs more water, and you meet the need. Now here's the crazy thing. Servants are never supposed to be in the limelight. Servants are never supposed to be getting a lot of attention. As a matter of fact, the best meals that you've had, the waiters probably were people who just drifted into the background so that you could focus on the food in front of you and the, and the friends that you were with. Service is the opposite of being in the limelight. But I was 16 and I got in trouble once, y'all. Uh, normally, we did these Italian weddings and Irish weddings and bar mitzvahs and all of that, but every now and then, there'd be a black wedding and the DJ would be off the chain. And I don't know, I think it's something that's in my DNA. Once they're doing the electric slide, I was like, I have to, I have to, I have to, I can't, I can't not do this. The maitre d' looked at me like locked eyes and ran across the room, grabbed me by my arm and said, like, Jordan, what are you doing? I was like, first of all, I had to do that, first of all. Second of all, I got, I got the lesson, I won't do that again. If the waiter made themselves like the highlight of, your, of the restaurant, you'd be like, bro, sis, what are we doing? The nature of service is to put others ahead of yourself. The nature of being a servant is to consider yourself, to consider other people ahead of yourselves. James says these beautiful words, and I think foundational to our Christian journey, wherever you may find yourself, if you are brand new to the faith and you are just understanding what it means to, you're kicking the tires of what it would look like to follow Jesus, or whether you've been following Jesus for decades, wherever you may find yourself, service, being a servant, is at the heart of the identity of anyone who would follow Jesus. Now, this is really difficult for a number of reasons. I'll speak for me right now. Uh, the number one reason it's difficult is because I am naturally prone to being self-centered. Very naturally. It doesn't come, it's not hard for me to think about me first. And it's not hard for me, and even I, when I look at my kids, um, I've never had to teach my kids to be selfish. Like, all right, so when your brother comes and he tries to get the toy, I want you to punch him in the stomach and say, no, mine. <laughs> all right, you got that? We've had to teach my, my, you know, we've done a lot of speech therapy and stuff, you know, my kids and stuff. I've never had to teach my kids the word mine. That came instinctively. There's a piece of all of us that are like four-year-olds. In every relationship that we operate in, in every social situation that we find ourselves in, we're looking out for what is mine. We don't want to consider the needs of other people of our own. Why would I want to do that? Lester said this last service story during the benediction. Um, basically, what I do is in the second service, I listen to what Lester said in his benediction, and then I incorporate that into the next message. <laughs> I don't want to do any of these things. I don't want to be a servant because it, it means that I have to give up my kingdom. I have a kingdom. I have a way that things, I think things should be done. I have a way that I would like things to operate. I have a way that I would like to be elevated. And by being a servant, not just merely doing acts of service, by taking the form of a servant, I have to say goodbye to my kingdom. I don't need you anymore. And I have to be willing to accept from Jesus something bigger and more beautiful than I could ever have on my own, a glimpse of his kingdom, to be a part of what he's doing in this life instead of the small, insignificant, here one day, gone tomorrow, kingdom of self. So 
first and foremost, I'm very naturally self-centered, and we need to pray this prayer that in, we find in Psalm 119.36. It says, turn my heart toward your statutes, Lord, toward your ways, and not toward selfish gain. If you're looking for a memory verse to re- memorize this week, this might be a good one to pray uh, several times a day. Turn my heart toward your ways, God, toward your statutes, and not toward selfish gain. We need God to do a work in our hearts daily for us to be able to be willing to let go of our kingdom to embrace what it means to be a servant. Now, the problem with us, it's not just personal, it's also cultural. We live in a celebrity culture. What does that mean? Now, more than ever, that in any other period in life, you and I feel a sense of connection and interaction with people with whom we will never have it reciprocated. You can watch LeBron's IG stories, whoever your favorite celebrity is, and more and more, we are more influenced by people that we have never met, will never meet, and really don't care about us. Now, social media makes this entirely possible where we actually feel a sense of connection to these people. And here's the crazy thing about celebrity culture and feeling connected to people is this, we start to become who we look up to. Isn't that funny how that works? The people that you look up to, slowly but surely, you start to become like them. And what if we looked up to celebrities? We would fall victim to the constant pursuit of larger, of bigger, of famous. In troubled times like these, we don't need more celebrities. We need more servants. Now, there's a correlation between who we are and who we look up to and what we imitate. What if we looked up to Jesus? What if we sought to imitate Jesus' life? Hebrews 13 and 7 says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider their outcome, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, this author was talking about their leaders in the church, and I would stretch this out and say, look at Jesus' way of life and imitate that. Now, years ago, I don't know how long ago this was, probably coming up on 20 years ago, um, Cedric the Entertainer had his bit on the Kings of Comedy um, that was one of the most memorable bits in comedy in the last couple of decades. I don't know when's the last time that many of you in this room have run. Like run, run, like really gave it your all. For some of y'all, it was you running half marathons and you do this all the time. For others of you, to be gracious, you haven't run in 15 years. But there is something that would make all of us run as soon as you get out of service today, is if you see somebody running. (laughs) If I step outside right now, I could just be chilling on my phone doing Wordle for the day. If I see somebody running, I'm just going to just take off and go in the other direction. (laughs) Because when somebody else starts running, I know that there's a danger that I don't want to be a part of. I don't need to investigate why they're running. I don't need to even know who they are. If they start running, I'm going to start running. I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark for the last couple of months um, as a personal time with Jesus. And over and over and over again, if you just read a Gospel, you see how much Jesus ran away from celebrity. At every possible time, Jesus ran away from being known, from getting acclaim, from the crowds. There's one scripture in Mark 4 or 5 where his disciples come to him. They're excited to Jesus. There's a whole crowd of people outside waiting for you. And Jesus says, let's leave. And they're like, no, Jesus. No, Papi, listen. <laughs> There's a whole crowd of people. They heard about your teaching. 
They're excited. They want to meet you. They've heard about the healings. And he said, I heard you. Let's leave. Jesus ran away from it. He ran away from acclaim because he knew that it's something dangerous in seeking the crowds and seeking fame and seeking some, to do something big. Jesus did not seek his own, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. And that looked a whole lot more like being a servant than it did like being a celebrity. We would all do well to follow Jesus' his, his lead and run away from the things and run towards service. So there's a scripture that I want us to look at today. It's in John 13. Uh, and it's something that if you've been around Christianity a little bit, you might have heard of it. I'll never forget when I was in law school, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he grew up with a pretty negative relationship with a lot of Christians. His only experience with Christianity is similar to what some of you may be facing, that is just like you've dealt with a lot of hypocrites, and you really have a clouded vision of who Jesus is because of all the hypocrites around you. And for that, I would just want to say I'm sorry for all of the negative interactions you've had with people who claim to be following Jesus and do the opposite. But... He did say one thing that has always bothered him, and it's bothered him in a good way. It's about the person of Jesus. He said, I've heard a lot of Bible stories, but the one story that has always made me really think to myself, man, this dude Jesus really might be God, was the story in John 13 of Jesus washing feet. Nothing else would motivate you to do something like this outside of divinity, he, he thought, and I would tend to agree with him. So it's in John 13, uh, and it's about Jesus, our servant. And I would hope that we would embody the words that are being read here in the scripture, and that by God's grace, this would be true of us as well. I want to start in verse 2. It says, Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So I first want to set the scene on who was in the room with Jesus. So Jesus is about to wash feet, but here's one of the people whose feet Jesus is about to wash. Judas who was about to betray him. Man, I, if I had more time, I'd unpack that. I don't even have time to unpack that. I'll say a little bit. <laughs> what does it say about the nature of grace that Jesus would wash the feet of the one who would betray him? Have you ever felt untouchable? Have you ever felt like God would not have anything to do with you? Have you ever looked at someone else like they were untouchable? Like God would have nothing to do with them? Yeah. Be careful. Jesus washed the feet of the man who would betray him. If he can do that, we could have a whole lot more room for people in our lives. I understand caring for yourself, and I understand boundaries. I understand all of these things. We'll get to them in a second. But a lot of us have cut people off so quickly, and I wonder if Jesus could wash Judas's feet, what that would mean for us in the way we relate to God and the way we relate to other people. That's a different sermon. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. This is a beautiful verse. Jesus knew, listen to what it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus didn't just have a little something something. He didn't just have a little bit of the kingdom. Jesus had everything into his hands. The world was his. Power was his. Authority was his. How does Jesus steward his power and his authority? 
I'm very glad you asked. So he got up from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel tied around him. Now, in these days, there was a person in homes that had a little bit of money that they would be a servant. Usually, it was a teenage girl because this was a role uh, reserved for people who basically couldn't get any other job. It was the least desirable job in the home to be the servant who washes feet. Jesus, who has everything in his hands, takes the form of a servant and washes feet. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. Uh, There's an aspect to all of our faith that in the moment things might not always make sense crystal clear, but if we'll stick with Jesus, if we'll stick with him over time, it will make sense. I grew up in Shiloh Baptist Church and the old saints would sing it, we'll understand it better by and by. Verse 12, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Jesus, it says, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is precisely what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here's what you should do. You also should do just as I have done for you. I'm going to stop there for a second. We have the tendency in church to over-spiritualize a whole lot of things. I get so many prayer requests that are just over-spiritualizing disobedience. I don't know what, what the Lord wants me to do. Okay, here's what he wants you to do. I want you to do just as I've done for you. I want you to see a need, and I want you to meet it. I want you to be a servant. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So it makes a whole lot of sense that when James, Jesus' brother, writes an epistle, that he would consider himself as a servant that he would put these things into practice into his life. Now, the world needs a whole lot more servants. Uh, Your friendship circles, your friends need more servants. They need you to be a servant. Someone who's not just considering what you can get out of it, what's in it for me, but how you can be a benefit and consider other people as well. Lord knows our marriages need more servants. You know, in American Christianity, You know, if you spend a little bit of time around different topics on marriage and different things, you'll hear churches talk a whole lot about submission and very rarely about sacrificial servanthood. To all the men in the place, if you are considering being married, here is the challenge for you, what the Lord would have you to do. You would need to lay down your ambitions, lay down your goals, lay down your desires, and take the form of a servant to your wife to take the form of a servant to serve your family. Do you want to do that? And if you don't, and you're not ready to do that, Paul's on saying, I do. Jesus made himself into a servant and washed his disciples' feet, demonstrating the most dramatic way that leadership is exercised, not through a final say, not through barking commands, 
getting the big piece of chicken. I do actually ask for the big piece of chicken. That's a weight, that's a weight thing. I weigh more than people in the house and I just need... It's equity, not equality in our house. But you become the servant and you die to yourself in order to serve the other. You become the servant and every single day you ask God for the grace to die to yourself to serve your family, to serve your wife. Our marriages, marriages need not more books on wisdom, not more, uh, not more therapy sessions on how to deal with conflict. We need servants. Lord knows we need more politicians who are servants. <laughs> I knew y'all was going to say amen to that. <laughs> people who once upon a time started out their careers with a whole lot of promises to serve in the interest of the people and ended up just serving their re-election campaign. In your jobs, Monday morning, your job needs more servants. More people, instead of just looking out for what they can get, how they can advance in the corporation, how they can be of service, not just to the cause of the organization, but into the people that they are working with. Now, a lot of times we talk about faith and work and how does it look like to, for you to live out your faith as a Christian at work. And a lot of times people hear that and they think about, well, how do I share the message of Jesus with my coworker? How do I invite her to lunch and then somehow, oh, you know, over the salad, you know, mention that I went to church or Jesus juke her in some way? What if the way that God wanted you to live as a Christian at work was to be a servant? That people would look at you and say, man, I don't know what's up with her, but like, yo, this dude, they're like, they really serve everybody. They're actually here for my good. That would blow the understanding off of people because it's so countercultural because everybody's in it for them. Man, our church needs more. Our church renaissance needs more servants. More people committed to the cause of the mission than they are to their own selves. Now, let me tell you one of the most discouraging things on our staff. Uh, one of the things that we deal with once a month, if not more, is dealing with the concept that we have so little people doing so much work. And it's so imbalanced that we have so many people who are doing, who come and they say they love Renaissance, they sign up for something once upon a time and they don't respond to volunteer stuff. And we live in this 80-20 rule where 20% of the people do like 80 or 90% of the work. And so much of my job is actually encouraging my staff and my leaders here at Renaissance who are just sad. This church needs more servants. I'm naive. I believe the best. There is an organizational rule that the 80-20 rule that 20% of people are going to do 80% of the work. I don't believe in that. I believe we can be better than that. I believe that we can be a people who see needs and we commit ourselves to meeting them. We can be people who are not just service-oriented, but we are servants in our own nature. And we see that as a part of our actual discipleship pathway. Our relationship with God, we need to consider that uh, we, need more, we need to consider ourselves a servant in our relationship with God. It clarifies the understanding of, a, of the gospel. So in James 1, there's this word used, which is doulos. And doulos basically means servant. And the concept of servant in antiquity was this, that there would be a person who wanted to gain access into like a Roman province or something like that. And they wouldn't be able to pay their way on their own. So someone would sponsor them, and in return for the payment that they could never pay, they would give them service in exchange. 
The early Christian authors picked up on this notion and said that Jesus, once upon a time, saw me on the outside of the kingdom of God. He paid a price through his blood and going on the cross that I could have never paid. And in exchange for what Jesus has already done for me, I am a servant. And the only rightful disposition to a person who properly understands the gospel and what Jesus has already given to us is that of service. I think that might change the way we pray. Maybe our prayers wouldn't be the laundry list of the way we want our cosmic concierge to meet our needs. And maybe it would be a little bit more in line with the gospel. Maybe there'd be more gratitude. What I'm trying to get at is that service and being a servant will change your life if you'll let it. Now, the best way to become a servant is by becoming a servant. The best way to become, like, generous is to start giving immediately. Not to wait for, like, your feelings to want you to do something because my feelings never, I never want to serve nobody. I never wake up and say, you know what I would love to do today? No, I don't want to eat chicken and watch the game. Yeah, that kitchen is really dirty. I can't wait to get in there and clean that kitchen. With my wife's permission, um, I'll share this story that for the last six months, um, I have committed to do the dishes in our home every single night. I sensed this as a spiritual practice that I wanted the Lord to develop me in, that I wanted to be a servant. And here's the thing. I've taken a lot of seminary classes. I've, been, I've heard thousands of sermons. And doing the dishes for the last six months, every single night, to me, has been more valuable than my entire MDiv, my entire Master's in Divinity. I have been formed and shaped more by doing these things than I have from learning a thousand facts that nobody cares about. Here are five ways that being a servant has really changed my life. And if you commit yourself to being a servant, to see a need and to meet it, I believe it will change your life as well. And that one day, when you describe yourself or what other people would describe you, they would say that you too are a servant. First way that has changed my life is that it reveals my temptation to make excuses. My, my, my. Now, even though I've committed to this, and even though I now have just said this publicly in front of all these people, uh, every single night I say to myself, I had a long day today, though. Like, I really, today was long. Like, I preached a sermon, I did two services, I had to deal with the kids, I had to deal with all these things. And I've realized that it doesn't matter what it is that I've committed to, I'm always trying to negotiate with myself. I'm always trying to negotiate, is this the thing that I could get out of? But when I look at the life of Jesus, and specifically John 13, Man, it really just, like, takes all my excuses and throws them away. So Jesus washed the feet of the one who would betray him, the one who would deny him, and all the cowards who ran away from him. Jesus took the form of a servant for people who did not deserve it. And when I look at Jesus, I see that all of my excuses really don't hold any water. But I do want to give a couple of caveats uh, before we go too deeply in what it means to be a servant and for you to commit your life to it. Uh, number one, there's a lot of people who have been burned, like burned, burned, burned by the church. Uh, I was talking to a woman years ago, and she came to Renaissance, and she said, hey, I was at another church, and I did, and I served, and my husband and I served together for 113 weeks in a row without a break. And they, like, organized their vacation around serving at the church, and by the time they came to Renaissance, they were burned out. And we never want to burn anybody out. And for those people, I said, listen, Take six months, take a year, sit in the back, come late, leave early, and God bless you. Uh, there is a natural part of us that does need healing when we have been burned out. Um, there's also a, another aspect to this that, in general, 
women have been basically designated the role to do the most menial tasks without, uh, without really a claim in, in their lives. And so much of, even in antiquity, uh, in, 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 the, in the concept of washing feet, so many people have really been restricted from doing things in your life and to, to be committed to be a servant is kind of murky. Well, what does it look like for me to advance myself and to be what God is calling me to do? But the principle of, of, of being a servant is beautiful. And it's a whole lot of dirty bath water and I would never want us to throw away the, the baby with, with the bath water. For others of us, we hear servant and we think that this means that we shouldn't have any boundaries, that we should just do any and everything, and that is absolutely not the case. You all need boundaries. Boundaries are lines that mark the edge or the limit of something. And you should never be boundaryless in your life. We all need to know what is the edge, what is the line and the limit. God has given us all limits. Your time, your energy, your education, your life, there are limitations baked into your life, your previous commitments, your family. There are a whole lot of limitations. So I would never want, to hear peop- I would never want people to hear from me any, any guilt, particularly if you are already past your limits. I was talking to a woman in our church. She's a single mother. Uh, she works full time. She's in school. She's taking classes. And by the time she gets to the end of the day, uh, really, she just crashes out like 8 p.m., and her life is so oriented around serving and being a servant, the last thing I would want her to hear or you to hear, if that is you, that you should do more and, and add more to what you're already doing. But still, with all of this being said, uh, I don't want us making excuses. If we do truly have bandwidth that we can give, if we, truly, if we truly can meet the needs that we see, I want us to meet them. So. Number one, it reveals my temptation to make excuses. Number two, it actually makes me love my family more. When I do the dishes, um, it started out being miserable. And over time, I've actually been more grateful that I have a home. I have all of these, that we've had these meals. I'm grateful for my, my wife and my kids. And I actually spend time really rehearsing gratitude that I have things in my life. I could say this without a shadow of a doubt. There is a direct correlation to the people who give the most to Renaissance and who love Renaissance the most. That by giving yourself to someone, you love them more. And here's why. Actions of love will always lead to feelings of love. If you want to love someone more, serve them more. But the same thing is also true in the, op- in the opposite. Actions of disregard, actions of disinterest, lead to feelings of disregard and feelings of disinterest. And that if you want to boost your love for anyone or any organization, serve them. Number three, service breaks the power of self-centeredness in my life. Service breaks, and being a servant breaks the power of self-centeredness in my life. It disrupts something called the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption is basically living with the assumption that everything around me is for me and for my consumption. Here's the truth. If you continually serve yourself, sooner or later, you will expect that this is what should happen. But we should be very warned about this. The scary thing is this, that we will always reap what we sow. In Galatians 6, 7 through 9, it says this, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. In other words, 
The more you consume, the more seeds you sow of consumption, the more you'll feel entitled to and want to consume. And you will drift further and further away from being a servant. The opposite is also true. The more you commit to being a servant and serving, the more you will strengthen what it means to be a servant in your life and in reality. A couple years ago, for the very first time, um, uh, I was able to stay at a villa in Jamaica. Now, I was not, I, my family, my mother-in-law's from Jamaica, big up to my people them, and um, <laughs> they have donned me an honorary J- Jamaican, and uh, I, take, I wear that title with pride. And um, my mother-in-law uh, knew a, a family that was actually very wealthy and basically gave us the ability to stay in their villa for like a fraction of the cost of what it would have costed for normal people to rent it out. And I'll never forget pulling up there the first time, and we pulled up, and I get out like I always do, and I go around to the back, and I open the trunk to get my bags, and the guy was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, yo, this is my bag. What do you mean what I'm doing? This is my bag. I'm going to get my bag. And he was like, no, no, no. I can take that. Do you, do you need something from it? And I was like, no, uh, not now. He's like, well, I'll just take it to your room. And they were like, no, Jordan, that's the butler. I said, the butler? <laughs> we sat down, and people are like laying a napkin across your waist. I'm like, yo, what is happening? This is amazing. <laughs> but here's the crazy reality of what happened over time. What started out as exceptional became something that I expected to happen. So day one, I was like thanking the butler, yo, thank you so much, man. You didn't have to do that. Yes, I'll have some oxtail gravy. More, more. Thank you so much. But by day five, I was like, yo, where is the butler? Where's he at? Where is he? What starts out as exceptional the first time will be expected the next time. Exceptional becomes exceptional. That's bad English, but good theology. <laughs> the more you consume, the more you will feel entitled to consume, and the more you will demand consumption, the more you will demand that the world operates around you and your little kingdom. Number four, being a servant reveals my falsely, uh, doing the dishes for six months has revealed my faulty understanding of servanthood. So servants don't seek fame. They don't seek acclaim. And I realized early on when I first started doing the dishes, I told my wife I was going to do them. I told Aswan and my friends I was going to do them. And I, a piece of me kind of expected everybody to be like, man, yo, that is amazing. But my kids were asleep. I did the dishes. I was making a lot of noise in there. Just to, and I came back and like, my wife was like just chilling, watching, you know, watching something on TV. And like nobody said anything. I was like, yeah, you know, just uh, dry, putting lotion on my hands from all that. <laughs> and I realized how much I wanted, I wanted to get noticed for what I've done. Servants who wash feet, they don't, nobody pays attention to what they're doing. They do their act and then people disregard them and walk away from them. And I think for a lot of us, the reason we don't serve, the reason we're not servants is because there's nothing in it for us. There's a story that an old preacher once told about uh, two men, and there was one man who was a farmer, and he brings this king a great carrot. He says, king, my king, because, you're, because you are this, the greatest ruler, I have grown this amazing carrot, and I wanted to present it to you as an example of my love and, and trust in all that you've done for us and all these people. 
The king looks at the man and says, man, because of what you have done for me, this beautiful gift, I'm giving you five acres of land for you to farm and to grow. There was another man in the court who overheard what the king had done for the man who brought him a carrot. And he thought to himself, if the king would give this man five acres of land for a carrot, what could he give me? So this man was a nobleman. He comes in with a horse, this beautiful horse, looked like sea biscuit, and walks in front of the horse and says, King, my king, because you are a great king, uh, rich in mercy and, 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 rule, and, a, and a great ruler, I have brought you the finest horse, horse from my stable that I ever had or ever will have, and I want to present it to you as a gift, as a token of my love and gratitude to you. The king said, thank you very much. And the man walked away, looking confused. The king, as the man was walking away, said, hey, come back and... Uh, I want to explain something to you. That man was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. For a lot of us, for myself, I've spent my life trying to give myself good favor with God, good favor with other people by being a servant, and I've missed the point completely. To be a servant is not based on what you can get out of it. We've already been given everything that we could ever need in Christ. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, our pursuit of God will miss the proper motivation of what it looks like to be filled in worship and response and give God our service because he is a good king. Last thing that has done is that uh, it's shown me that real growth takes time. Listen, y'all, real growth takes time. Early on, I really did struggle, to be perfectly honest, with, this, with wanting recognition, uh, struggle with consistency. And over time, I've realized more, the more and more that I do it, the stronger I become. Here's the truth that is true about everything in your life. The more you do something, the easier it will become. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, the more you do anything, the better you will be at it. But real growth takes time. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit to meet the needs that you see already. For those of you who... Um, I first want you to meet the needs with the people that are closest to you, in your families, with your closest friends. I first want you to be a person who is a servant at home and with your closest relationships. For those of you who belong to Renaissance and you are part of our family here, I would love for you to be a servant disciple at Renaissance. Not that you would just randomly do acts of service, but that you would be a servant. That you would see this as not something that you do to help people out, but that this is a part of your discipleship. Our crew director, Portia, is going to be sending out an email this week about um, uh, what it looks like to sign up to join one of the crews. Um, and here's what we would need from people. We know a lot of stuff has happened. Omicron happened. We had shutdowns. And a lot of things have been very uh, wonky and different comfort levels to come back to church. For those of you who are here and you feel comfortable uh, in terms of uh, being around other people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit to being a servant at Renaissance. Now, the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And one of the biggest categories of people are people who once upon a time signed up to serve. And for whatever reason, maybe it was a shutdown, maybe it was something else, life got really hard, you've fallen away from serving. And there might even be a little shame that, that says, man, like, what are they going to think about me for coming back a year later, six months later? Love keeps no record of wrongs. What we want you to do is to know that God welcomes you back. We welcome you back. And we want to see your faith sharpened through being a servant. For all my married men in here who are not ready doing it, I want you to take this, my, this other challenge with me. I want you to do the dishes every single night. I want you to commit to being a servant 
in your home. I want your wife to look at you and say, that man is a servant. He serves sacrificially with no regard for how he can advance. And for all of us, my hope and my prayer is that it would deepen how we see ourselves and how we would see God based not on reading more books, but by doing what Jesus says for us to do. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, I'm so grateful for the example, for the life, for the death, for the burial, for the resurrection of Jesus, who gives us hope, who gives us hope that our lives are not defined by what we have done, but by who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to throw our kingdoms away in pursuit of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.